Uh, just a little reminder, um, if you want to be receiving our class emails, make sure you do um, sign in, put your email address. We do like to get a little bit of an idea of who's attending, so if you can go through the little sheet as you walk in and check it off. Uh, but the big thing is to make sure that we have your email address so that we can plug you into the class. And, um, and then you'll be getting uh, the resources. Raise your hand if you got my email earlier in the week. Great. So um, I'll be trying to send out resources here and there um, just for your encouragement. <clears throat> the other thing I'd like to do is to, um, we have several, this is like, gosh, I was trying to count this up yesterday, but we started going through systematic theology back in around 1998. I think this is my sixth or seventh time. Uh, going through material like this. I'm hoping I'm not going to just, it's not going to be a broken record. I'm trying to keep it fresh every time. Not do like when I was a public school teacher and sometimes when you get to the 25th year, you start like recycling the same thing over and over again. Um, not that I did that, but um, but hopefully we can keep it fresh. But um, because these are short lectures, I'm going to try to send you guys some links to some of our previous lectures if you're interested. Uh, if you want more information, I can send out kind of like the long version. But let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll we'll jump right into this morning's lesson. Lord, we thank you so much for just the blessing of being together as the body of Christ. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for the Holy Spirit that illumines your word. We ask God that you help us grow thereby today as the body of Christ, and uh, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, kind of our opening question today is what determines what puzzle pieces go into the box? How do we know that we have the right pieces? We're working on this motif of a puzzle. Um, we started last week. My family and I, we actually bought a little cheap puzzle, 100 pieces this week, decided we'd give it a shot and see if, you know, it works, you know, looking for the edges and trying to categorize things. And... Uh, my kids are better at it than me. They did come up with a final puzzle here of a little kitty cat. Uh, but let's ask this question. Who determines what puzzle pieces go into the box? Well, obviously, it's the company that makes the puzzle, right? They put in the pieces. And then how do we know that we have the right pieces? Well, we would only know that if we're trying to put the puzzle together, right? We put the puzzle together. And then once we get it constructed, then we realize, okay, all the right pieces are actually in the box um, and that we have all the pieces. Um, but just imagine for a second that, um, that we don't have all the pieces or we can't see all of the pieces or that we're looking through, as Paul says, uh, a mirror dimly. We've got this old mirror you know, in the ancient times, they didn't have mirrors like we have today. They're looking into something that doesn't give a very accurate reflection. We're trying to see through that mirror, and we can't quite get all the pieces. Or, or we still have sin. We still have things that are marring our vision. Maybe it's maturity. Maybe it's uh, indwelling sin. Maybe it's we're actually giving ourselves over to sin. Maybe there's pride that all of us struggle with that can actually mar our ability to deal with this puzzle. Which brings us to Amanda's question from last week and that is if the scriptures are so complete and so sufficient why do we have so many different viewpoints um, out there why isn't there more unity in the body now, we're actually going to spend most of this course answering that very question so I'm glad that Amanda brought it up um, but I just really want to bring up really what amounts to one answer to that question if you'd open up to Romans 15 we're going to try to answer that question first as a kickstart into our lesson this morning. I'm not going to take a ton of time in this because we're going to hit this more in depth when we get to what we call the clarity of Scripture next week. But in Romans 15, I think part of the answer to that question, why, can the, why is there uh, not more unity than maybe we would hope for? Imagine that we had a panel up here in front of the, our class here. Right here is the 14-year-old guy named Mike Berry. We'll call him Calvary Chapel Mike Berry. 
And then right here is our uh, 21-year-old Mike Berry. We'll call him Camps Crusade for Christ, Mike Berry. And then over here is the guy that started to go on uh, Reformed Baptist Church of Riverside. We'll call him Reformed Baptist Mike Berry. And then over here is the early Cornerstone Mike Berry. And then over here, this is a, a later Cornerstone Mike Berry. And we throw out a topic to all these guys and we say, we want you to debate predestination. What do you think that debate would look like with our panel? It'd probably be some different viewpoints, right? There wouldn't be complete unity. And one of the reasons why there wouldn't be complete unity is, well, it's Mike Berry, first of all. We've got a guy who's got indwelling sin, right? He's, he's a Christian, but he's still a sinner. And there's varying levels of maturity. There's a 14-year-old version, and there's a 51-year-old version. So the 14-year-old version, did he know as much Scripture as the 51-year-old version? No, of course not. Um, but you've got pride all throughout. And if you were to, you know, truth be told, if you were to look at my sanctification on a chart, it looks a little bit like the stock market at times. And so you would see quite a debate between the exact same person, depending on what type of decade you dropped into. That would explain, I think, some of the differences. We'll get more into that later in this class. But I think the other thing, what we see in Romans 14 is that sometimes we just don't really hope. We have a hope problem and a belief problem when it comes to the connection between God and His Word. And so let me just read a couple passages. We won't have time to do a long explanation because we have much more to get into, but Romans fifteen fourteen, For whatever things were written were written for our learning. Talking about the Old Testament Scriptures that we, through the patience and comfort of the what? Scriptures might have hope. Patience, I'm reading from a New King James, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures. This is a Romans 15.4. I'm sorry, 15.4. Did I say 14? All right, see, there you go right there. I got indwelling sin, finitude. Uh, so 15.4, let's do this again. For whatever things were written beforehand were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the what? Scriptures might have hope. So patience, comfort through the scriptures might have hope. Now notice what Paul does right after that. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant to you to be like-minded towards one another according to Christ Jesus. How do we get to like-mindedness? Well, Paul is arguing that like-mindedness in the body of Christ comes and when we understand that our patient and comfort comes through the Scriptures, and that leads us to hope. And then he puts right, you can put an equal sign between these two verses, that Scriptures equal God. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you like-mindedness. It's God who gives us the scriptures so that we can have hope. It's God who gives us the scriptures so that we can have patience, so we can walk in patience and comfort. Do we really believe that? Do we believe that the God of all hope has given us what we need for hope in the scriptures? And I just want to tell you and be honest with you, throughout my lifetime, sometimes I've believed it, sometimes I haven't. Um, and sometimes I think I believe it, and other times I don't. Here's something that we're going to say throughout this class. The scriptures are the cliff notes of life. Let me say it again. The scriptures are the cliff notes of life granted to us by the Holy Spirit through Christ. You can go and study all the different philosophies and systems. You can get counsel. You can get advice. You can study everything there is out there in life. But if you want to get to the straight scoop, to the God who has all data, who's revealed to us what we need for life and godliness, go straight to the scriptures and you're going to get what you need for life and godliness. You know, Jesus Christ says in John six sixty three, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Think about that. Jesus says, I'm giving you words that are spirit and life. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits what? Nothing. 
And in this context, flesh doesn't mean flesh as opposed to spirit, like internal spirit. Flesh is basically all other wisdom other than what comes from Christ. If you were to take all of the world's wisdom and put it on the grand scale of life and compare it to the gospel, compare it to what we have in the Bible, Jesus' evaluation of all the world's wisdom is a goose egg. Nothing. Paul agrees with that when he says that the wisdom of this world is foolishness. God has taken the, the wisdom of this world and has turned it upside down. It's the foolishness of the message preached that is actual wisdom in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So that's a, the short answer. That's the Cliff Notes version. We're going to come back to that. So you've got Mike Berry up here. He's having all kinds of debates, but to the extent that Mike Berry actually trusts that the Bible does give us hope, peace, and comfort, and that's the cliff notes of life. And the more I realize that I'm not that smart, I'm not as smart as I think I am. And if I just go to the Bible and really study and believe what the Bible says, over the course of life, I'm going to see myself grow. And these Mike Berries, I hopefully I get more and more unified with where Christ is going. And by the way, um, Christ does complete the picture, and he loved all of those Mike Berries. Every single one, even though we were a, a, a contradiction, I'm a, I'm a walking contradiction, Christ loved me all the way to the end, and he's going to get me there, and he's going to get you there. We see the back of the tapestry sometimes of the body of Christ that looks like a mess. Jesus sees the front of the tapestry. And when he prays in John 17 for us, he sees the completed picture that we don't always see john knox during his life was looking at the church and seeing a contorted mess even though he'd worked his whole life for the church but he would hear and listen to john 17 as a comfort to his soul knowing that christ had it all control and control and christ sees the front of the tapestry with that let's go ahead and let's get into this morning's lesson we're gonna spend time talking about the canon and the authority of Scripture. So our um, last week, we asked three basic questions. We asked, what is systematic theology? We asked, why should we study systematic theology and how? And the short answer to those three questions is, systematic theology is basically studying all of the Bible and trying to put the puzzle together by discerning the edges of the puzzle, Right. And as we looked at Cleopas and the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, one of the things that Christ imparts to them is Jesus goes back to the law and the prophets. He goes to the Old Testament. And he, he begins to speak to them about what? What does he teach them? All the things concerning himself, beginning with Moses through the scriptures. And there's two themes. There's two big kind of like edges of the puzzle that seems like Jesus points out in verse 26 and 46. Anybody remember what those two themes are? Uh, Moses and the prophets is the content. That's the source. Suffering and glory. Suffering and glory are part of the edges of this puzzle. And as you as you keep that in mind, suffering and glory, and you begin to read the scriptures the way Jesus was explaining the scriptures to the people on the road to Emmaus, that gives you part of the edge, suffering and glory. Jesus must suffer to enter his glory. And so we, so we see that, um, so that systematic theology is basically studying all of the scriptures to find the grand theme so that we can put the puzzle together. How do we go about doing systematic theology? It's very similar. We study all of the scriptures to come up with the grand themes of what God thinks is important for us. Uh, that's how we do it. And we, the reason we do it is not just so that we can all debate one another and we can debate predestination. We can debate different issues. We can feel smarter. We can use big words. The whole reason we're doing this is because we want our hearts to burn for Christ, right? We want to know his love for us. So our hearts burn for him, and then that spills out onto our relationships, both with believers and unbelievers. That's kind of the big idea of what we did last week. By the way, Mike Dake, a, a, a believer in the Lord, had a memorial service for him right here. He is now looking at Jesus. He got there. I'm sitting here in this room yesterday thinking, he made it. 
He made it. I want to make it. How am I going to make it? Well, part of the way I'm going to make it is by using the cliff notes that the Holy Spirit has given to me because I'm not that smart. And so I just want to know his cliff notes to get this puzzle so that I can make it and get to Jesus. Right. Isn't that what you want? We want to get there so that we can behold Christ. All right. So that's kind of our review. Let's talk about kind of like our starting point. We're not going to take a lot of time on this that basically we can do theology because god does exist right genesis 1 1 in the beginning god the bible doesn't try to prove the existence of god it assumes it it presupposes it and god is a god who speaks right god said let there be light and then god created human beings in his image with a capacity to understand that speech. So right out the gate, we can do theology because we have a God who does exist and he has spoken to us. Kind of goes back to, I don't know if you guys have, anybody here is familiar with Francis Schaeffer, uh, his book that the God who is there, right? He is and he speaks. He's there and he speaks. And so this is the presupposition throughout the Bible. And we're going to come back to this over and over again. We don't try to prove his existence. There are some rational reasons because God's world is his world that can explain his existence. But the Bible presupposes he's there. He speaks. We have the capacity to understand him. And so that's why we can even do this thing, this puzzle making activity called theology or systematic theology. Let's talk about the canon for a second. How do we know that we have the right pieces in the puzzle box? This is a big question. Every time, you know, you every so often you turn on the History Channel or something on TV and there's somebody else that's telling you that we don't have the right pieces in the box. And so this is a big question. We want to try to answer it. Uh, in a short period of time, again, I'll send you a, a longer lecture if you guys want more of the data on this. Uh, but let's talk about this question. How do we really know that we have the right pieces? It's a question called canon. And so let's define, first of all, what we mean by canon. Canon comes from a Hebrew word and a Greek word, which means measuring rod. Measuring rod. When we speak of canon... We're not, when we talk about measuring rod, we're not talking about some external criteria by which to judge which books get in the Bible. We're actually talking about the Bible itself. It is the measuring rod. So when we speak of the canon, we mean the books which the Holy Spirit inspired, which his people have recognized to be the word of God. All right. You know, if you're working at a bank, a banker, a teller doesn't create the money. They just recognize genuine money, correct? They don't create it. They recognize it. And in the same sense, the church doesn't create the canon. It recognizes the canon. Let's talk about the process of canonization. It's important to recognize uh, that the formation of the canon of Scripture was a process, not an event. It's not like in Mormonism where golden plates drop out of the sky. God actually inspired various authors over 1,800 years approximately. We've got basically 39 books in the Old Testament. You've got 27 books in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is using a process that involves both human and divine elements. God is using human beings to get his word written. It's the way he's chosen to do it. And actually, it's a beautiful system. We'll explain why I think it's so beautiful in a second. It's actually an an incredible apologetic that allows not just one group to have a monopoly over the scriptures. In in Mormonism, you have to just pretty much trust Joseph Smith, that whatever plates were, that he got it right. In Christianity, nobody had a monopoly over the texts of scripture. And so it didn't depend on one person. It depended upon the oversight of the Holy Spirit. So let's start with the Old Testament canon. First of all, the earliest collection of written words from God was the Ten Commandments. As he wrote with his own finger 
and he gives it these two tablets to Moses, and Moses brings it to the people of God, as we have there in Exodus uh, 31, 18. But secondly, uh, in relationship to the Old Testament, while no one was allowed to add to God's word on his own authority, God himself authorized additions. So we want to make sure we keep this in mind as well. Remember the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 4.2 says, you shall not add or take away, right? But then in Joshua, you have Joshua adding to the Torah. Why is he doing that? He's adding to that under the authorization of the Lord. Notice Deuteronomy 31. And it came about when Moses finished these words of uh, the law in the book until they were complete that Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant, that it may remain there as a witness against you. So the actual book of the law is put into the Ark, representing that these are the very words of God. And then Joshua comes along, and what does he do? Joshua twenty four twenty six. Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak um, that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Jeremiah 30, verse 2, would just be one other example. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. So God had the right to authorize additions to Old Testament canon. When you get to approximately 435 B.C., which is the date that we normally set for Malachi, there were no further additions to the Old Testament. And this is clear from later Jewish literature. So how do we know that there were no other additions? Well, one would be from the Apocrypha. We'll talk about the Apocrypha here in a second. But I just want to make the point that the Apocrypha itself says that there were no other additions coming after Malachi. So, for instance, in 1 Maccabees uh, chapter 4, it says, uh, so they tore down the altar and stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill until there should come a prophet to tell what to do with them. Maccabees 9.27, uh, the author of Maccabees spoke of a great distress such as had not been since the time that prophets ceased to appear among them. Josephus, a Jewish uh, historian in 37 AD, says from Artaxerxes, all right, so that's uh, the, the post-exilic period when they're sending the Jews back to rebuild the temple. Uh, to our own times, so he's writing in 37 AD, a complete history has been written, but there has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records because of the failure of exact succession of prophets. So he's basically saying there's no prophets from Artaxerxes until his time. And then rabbinic literature and the literature of the Qumran community also speaks of prophecy as a thing of the past. So all this to establish the idea that from 435 B.C. up until the time of Christ, there's a, a consistent tale of we aren't seeing any prophets anymore. There's no more scripture um, in fact, one of the things that we see is there's no debate between uh, in the New Testament uh, between Jesus and the Jews over the canon. Grudem, Wayne Grudem says, uh, a, a theologian, Jesus and the New Testament authors quote various parts of the Old Testament scriptures is divinely authoritative 295 times, but not once do they cite any statement from the books of the Apocrypha or any other writings as having divine authority. So there's no debate between Jesus and the Jews. As many things as they were debating, nobody's debating the extent of the canon. We'll talk about some quotes in Jude later. Um, there's some information there that we'll hit later in this class. But what we're establishing here is there's no debate between Jesus and, and, the, and the Pharisees and Sadducees about the extent of the canon. With that, let's talk a little bit about the Apocrypha. Raise your hand if you come from a Catholic background. Okay, so some of you guys come from a Catholic background. So you'd be familiar in the, in the Catholic canon. Uh, you would have some books in the middle between your Old Testament and New Testament called the Apocrypha, which means things that are hidden. But scho scholars aren't really sure why we call it the things that are hidden. Uh, Catholics call it the Deuterocanon. But let me give you just quickly four reasons why the Apocrypha should not be regarded as Scripture. 
Uh, reason number one is they do not claim for themselves the same kind of authority as the Old Testament writings. They're not saying, thus says the Lord. Secondly, they were not regarded as God's word by the Jewish people from whom they or, uh, came, and there's no Hebrew original behind them. They're all in Greek. So no Jews saw the Apocrypha as authoritative. Right? It was only Catholics later. Um, thirdly, they were not considered to be Scripture by Jesus or the New Testament authors. Again, there's no indication that they, that they quoted the Apocrypha as coming from the Lord. And lastly, they contain teachings that are inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. Um, so let me ask this question. What decision did the Roman Catholic Church make at the Council of Trent in 546, 1546 concerning the Apocrypha? Yeah, they canonized it. They made the Apocrypha in 1546. This is very late, on par with Scripture. The reason? In order to basically one-up the Reformers. The Reformers were arguing sola scriptura, Scripture first, Church second. So the Catholic Church came up and said, well, we're going to make the Apocrypha Scripture. What do you say about that? <clears throat> That's, that was basically what they did. Yeah, you had a question? Yeah, the Apocrypha was written, most of it you have it for about 200 B.C. up until just before, uh, you know, the arrival of Christ. And so so you have the parts of, you have Maccabees. There are some interesting things there to read for historical purposes. Um, but yeah, they wouldn't have been regarded as Scripture by Christ or the Pharisees. It's only really Greek Christians later, Greek and Latin Christians that began to start to toy with the idea of maybe they're on par. We don't really have time for this, but I could give you quotes from early church fathers where they also talk about their own writings aren't on par with the scriptures and so on. So let's talk about the New Testament canon. So that's the Old Testament. When you come to the New Testament, one of the things that sometimes we forget about is just the need for canonization that the early church really wouldn't necessarily have seen the need the way that we see it. Um, scriptures are being, are, you know, the apostles and prophets are going around prophesying and writing. These letters that are being understood as God's word are being passed around. But as church doctrine normally rolls, things kind of just move along smoothly until it gets challenged and heresy rises up. Then the church has to formalize. And so what you have here is the need for canonization is several things. One is the apostles begin to die off and their writings are preserved by churches and copyists and pastors as the apostles are dying. But then also because of all the, the 10 waves of persecution that we have in church history is you have traitors who are beginning to turn over copies of scripture. So that's a, another reason why churches are starting to say, hey, we got to we got to start to formalize. We've got to get our list together because we're starting to lose copies of the scripture. Also, the proliferation of what we call pseudepigraphical works, that's false writers. You even see evidence as, uh, of this in Second Thessalonians, where Paul describes as if a letter came from somebody else. What this would be is somebody who's writing a letter claiming to be Peter, claiming to be Thomas, claiming to be Paul. And so because of these false writings, the church began to formalize uh, its list of, of documents. And then you also have incomplete canons. Marcion was one that was very anti-Semitic, and so he tried to exclude New Testament writings that seemed too Jewish. Later on, you have, uh, oh, why am I forgetting his name? Montanus, who's beginning to add prophecies. And so, so there was both the incomplete and the additions. So let's talk about the existence of the canon. We must not confuse the existence of the canon, which is God's action, with the recognition of the canon. Uh, the church, or the activity of the church, that is statements of church fathers, decrees, and so on, uh, and councils, uh, there. The activity of the church concerning the contents of the New Testament does not create the canon. So there's a difference between recognition and creation, just like our analogy of a banker recognizing genuine money versus creating genuine. God is the one who mints the coin. 
uh, we're the ones that just recognize the coin. And it's a process that happens over the first several centuries of the church. So, so that's the existence of the canon. Let's talk about criteria of can, canonicity. We've got both external, what we call external and internal criteria. The external criteria would be this. So this would be, what was the church asking early? You know, if you're, if you're in the church and all of a sudden somebody's trying to throw new puzzle pieces into the box, you know, if somebody's walking by and like flipping new puzzle pieces in there, how do you go about trying to figure out which ones people are trying, these false writers and stuff like that? Well, one would be, is it have apostolic authority? So not just authorship, because we know a guy like Mark wrote Mark, but he had the apostolic authority of Peter. Luke writes Luke and Acts, but he has the authority of Paul. And so the early church was looking for this apostolic authority. We'll come back to John 14 and 16 later, but basically where Jesus authorizes the apostle, pre-authorizes them both to write scripture and promises that the Holy Spirit will bring all things to their remembrance. But then they also looked for antiquity. Was it written in the time of the apostles? Some of these so-called Gnostic gospels are written very, very late. And if you, we'll give you an example here a little bit later of just the nonsense that's in the Gnostic gospels. What we have in the New Testament is early. The latest book is Revelation, probably in 90 AD. Um, the early, earlier books are written in the 50s. Some, some would say even late 40s. Also, there's universal acceptance. Most of the books of our New Testament are universally accepted very, very, very early. Even some of the ones are questioned. They're still accepted very early. Um, and then fourthly, there's conformity to the rule of faith. Like, do they, are they conforming to the gospel? We're, again, we'll give you some examples of a, of a writing that clearly does not conform to the gospel. Let's talk about internal criteria. And this actually was the most important criteria that the church had. They would basically just ask, does, does this, is this inspired? Does this have the ring of inspiration? So you think about it. How would the church know if it's inspired? Well, it's kind of like if you're putting the puzzle together and the pieces are coming together and you're starting to see the picture, you would say, these are the right pieces. And in the same sense as the Holy Spirit has given his word to his sheep, Jesus says, my sheep, what? Hear my voice. So the true sheep hear his voice. And so as we're reading the scriptures, imagine we're reading the Bible together before the full canon has come together. We're, we're putting pieces together. The sheep are hearing the word preached. They're hearing the word read. And they're like, yes, this has the ring of inspiration. The Holy Spirit is bearing witness in their hearts that, yes, this is the word of God. Uh, but even beyond that is self-authentication. This is probably inspiration and self-authentication were the two biggest criteria really for the canon. And what do we mean by that? Richard Gaffin says this in the final analysis, the attempt to demonstrate criteria of canonicity seeks from a position above the canon to rationalize or generalize about the canon. Instead, we must recognize the New Testament canon as self-establishing, self-validating entity. When we say canon, we're not talking about a list of criteria outside of the Bible to determine whether the Bible is the word of God. We're talking about the Bible is the canon. It is the rule. Um, it is the evidence. And we'll come back to this later, but in Hebrews 6, when God wants to guarantee a promise that he's making, uh, Hebrews 6 says he, when he could swear by no one else, he swore by himself. God is the highest source of authority. And so he doesn't appeal to some outside source like truth. He is truth. He doesn't appeal to the universe. He created the universe. And if the Bible is the word of God, there is no other authority to which we can appeal. All right. This is this may get a little tricky for you, but follow me here. Uh, Self-authenticating evidences. We're going to we're going to run through this rather quickly. Jesus quotes the Old Testament as the word of God. He pre-authenticates the apostles. He comes to the apostles in uh, John 14 and 16. In fact, let's go ahead and turn there. We do have to, we do need to look at these real quick. 
Look at John 14. These are two passages I would encourage you to read on your own and study on your own. 14.26, But when the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. That is a key verse that we presuppose when it comes to the New Testament, is that the Holy Spirit brought to the mind of the apostles all things with perfect recall. And then 16.13 and 14, however, when he, that is the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into what? All truth. For he will speak on his own, not on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you of things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. So a couple things going on there. He's, gonna, he's going to guide them into all truth, and then he's also going to reveal new revelation to the apostles. And so there's this pre-authentication of the apostles. Not only that, but the apostles, they know that they have been authenticated. Peter, they authenticate one another. Peter authenticates Paul. Paul says he knows that he's writing the word of God in several different places. Um, look at 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Thessalonians 2 for examples. Also, when you look at the early church fathers, Ignatius, very close to the time of the apostles, says, I do not order you as did Peter and Paul. They were what? apostles so even the early church fathers are distinguishing themselves from the apostles saying that we don't have the same authority first uh, fourth paul quoting luke's writings as scripture we don't have time to look at those verses but look at them on your own peter stamping his approval on the writings of paul he calls paul's writings graphe scripture says that people twist the uh, paul's writings just as they do the rest of the scriptures And then finally, we have the internal witness of the spirit where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And that's really the ultimate, the ultimate criteria as the Westminster Confession of Faith says, scripture must be confirmed by the witness of the spirit. Thus may its authority be established as certain. And it is a wicked falsehood that its credibility depends upon the judgment of the church. I love how these guys would write. Let's not mince any words here. It's the witness of the spirit that helps us understand that it's the canon is from God. And to think that the canon depends upon the credibility or the judgment of the church is a wicked falsehood. Um, Calvin has other words to say about that. If you want some more dicey language, look at Luther. So should we expect any more writings to be added to the canon? Answer, no. Hebrews 1, 2, we have uh, basically we have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament. Revelation at the end of the canon tells us if you add anything to this book. Yes, I know he's talking about the book of Revelation. May curses come upon you. But the point is, is in the Old Testament, we do have a stopping of Revelation, right? At the end of Malachi, there's an ending of Revelation, but it's looking forward to new Revelation. There's this looking forward to John the Baptist. We also have Deuteronomy 18 that's looking forward to other, another prophet. But at the end of the New Testament, you get no such idea. You get an idea that we now have the faith once for all delivered to the saints. There's no indication of, hey, now we're looking for new prophets. We're looking for new information. Um, let me just say, give you a little quote here from Spurgeon. Actually, let me make this final point and then we'll, we'll kind of hit Spurgeon here. So how do we know then that we have the right books in the canon of Scripture that we now possess? How do we know that we've got the right pieces in the puzzle box? First of all, our confidence is based on the faithfulness of God. I'll make, if God really did want us to know him and he's deemed that he's going to call us to know him through the Scriptures, we just believe that he's going to be faithful to give us what we need in the Scriptures as he's laid out for us. Uh, the, preser- the preservation of the canon should be seen as part of the history of redemption, not merely as church history. That God has preserved his scriptures for us. We'll, we can talk about preservation later. And then secondly, we're ultimately persuaded by the Holy Spirit who convinces us as we read the scripture. This is not the Mormon doctrine of burning in the bosom. Mormons tell you to go off into a closet and just wait for a burning. We say, read your Bible. Put the pieces of the puzzle together. And as you see the pieces coming together, 
the Holy Spirit will testify to your spirit that, yes, this is the word of God. His sheep hear his voice. And that's the way the church has been recognized in the canon really throughout for 2000 years is we read the Bible and we're like, yes, yes. Before I get to the Spurgeon quote, let me just read a quote from the Gospel of Thomas. Simon Peter said to them, let Mary go away from us for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, lo, I shall lead her so that I may make her a male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who makes herself a male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't that just sound like our Lord? Doesn't that have the ring of truth about it? You know, the Gnostic Gospels are full of this nonsense. Anybody wants to, anytime somebody brings up to me, Gospel of Thomas this and this and that, I just take them to some of the actual content. And it's the Gnostic Gospels are nonsense. Why did they write their pseudepigraphical works? It's because the gospel was progressing. The church was growing and they wanted to get on the party and spread their false beliefs. So they would just take a guy like Paul and take a guy like Thomas and a guy like Peter, write out something and pretend like it was their name. But praise God, the, all you got to do is read this material and know it's just berserk, right? Listen to what Spurgeon has to say. I, I, I can't say things the way Spurgeon says it. So I'm going to have to, I'm going to read this and then we're going to end here and, um, and we'll do the authority of scripture next week with the other um, attributes of scripture. But listen to this quote from Spurgeon. The canon of revelation is closed. There is no more to be added. I wish I could do this with a British accent. God does not give us fresh revelation, but rivets of the old one. When it has been forgotten and laid in the dusty chamber of our memory, he fetches it out and cleans the picture, but he does not paint a new one. There are no new doctrines, but the old ones are often revived. It is not, I say, any new revelation that the spirit comforts. Uh, It is not, I say, by any new revelation that the spirit comforts. He does so by telling us old things over and over again. He brings a fresh lamp to manifest the treasures hidden in Scripture. He unlocks the strong chest in which the truth is long lain, and he points to secret chambers filled with untold riches. Believer, there is enough in the Bible for you to live upon forever. If you should outnumber the years of Methuselah, there would be no need for a fresh revelation. If you should live till Christ should come upon the earth, there would be no necessity for the addition of a single word. If you should go down as deep as Jonah or even descend as David said he did into the belly of Sheol, still there would be enough in the Bible to comfort you without a supplementary sentence. But Christ says he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. I don't know how Spurgeon does that kind of stuff. It's just incredible. Um, What is Spurgeon saying? The Holy Spirit comforts us through the word and we have everything that we need for life and godliness in his word. We cannot exhaust it. Let's go back to the way we started. Let's go back to Romans. And then I'll, I'll take uh, just a couple questions. Romans 15. Let me actually start in Romans 15, verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul wants us to have hope. He wants us to have joy, peace in believing. Believing what? that you may abound in hope and the power of the Holy Spirit. How do we get the power of the Holy Spirit that leads us to such hope and peace and comfort? Look back at verse 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of what? The Scriptures might have hope. 
The Holy Spirit uses the scriptures to give us hope, which comes from God. Verse 5, now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded. We get hope from the Holy Spirit through the scriptures. I just want to encourage you that if you give yourself, this is not an old dead book. Give yourself to it in faith that God wants to comfort you and give you peace and hope and patience. Give yourself to it. I think a lot of times we just don't believe that if we give ourselves to it, that God really will do his work for us through his word. That's part of what we're going to explain. It, there are different nooks and crannies of that that we're going to tease out in this cl- class. But I just want to encourage all of us to give ourselves to this book that's been inspired by the Holy Spirit. All right, we have time for 30 seconds of questions. Yes, Barbara. Yeah, so the question is, uh, is Maccabees given the same level of authority as, say, someone like Josephus? Yeah, so with Maccabees does give us really good history. There's things that we would not know about um, without the first and second Maccabees. So, but we would we would not put it on par of scriptures. Uh, we would, yeah, I think seeing it kind of like Josephus, like is a good way to view first and second Maccabees. Yeah, Amanda, and then Cherish. So the question is, if God uh, authorized additions to the Old Testament, why wouldn't he authorize additions to the New Testament? And I'll have to end with this question. I'll take Cherish's question up here afterwards. But um, the short answer to that is the Old Testament anticipates fresh revelation. The New Testament cuts off fresh revelation. When you get to the end of the New Testament, as the New Testament's being developed, not only is there no indication to look forward to new revelation, there seems to be a discouragement from looking forward to new revelation. That everything we have for life and godliness is in the scriptures. We can look at Jude. We can look at Hebrews 1. We can look at Revelation 22. There's all kinds of evidence for that. Plus, I, if I had time, we'll, we'll get there later. Just the whole definition of prophecy, thus says the Lord. Um, I think by virtue of just the definition of prophecy itself, if we were getting prophecy today, we should be willing to add it to our Bibles. And I, in my view, I don't see any place in the last 2,000 years we've got anything that's worthy to be added to our Bibles. The two witnesses. Yeah, so the two witnesses in the, in the tribulation, those people, that's the one caveat that I didn't share is I do believe there will be in the tribulation, you have two witnesses coming down. I don't know that they're getting fresh divine or brand new stuff that would be added to scripture as much as they are rehearsing and reiterating what's already come before. So that's kind of the short answer. But we are now two minutes over, so let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity for us to be together and to look at your word. We thank you for the the canon that we've been given and uh, the hope that we have in the scriptures. We pray, Father, that you would help us to grow thereby. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I'll be up here if you guys do have um, questions. I'll hang out as long as you as uh, needed.